Has the program taught us all a little bit of patience? You may need a little with me today. I never know what I'm going to say, where I'm going to go with anything, and I hope that God's with me this morning. And when Randy called me, he said, uh, Roger, I need a speaker. I said, oh, for what? He's, and, you know, when you get a little bit older, your hearing changes and your vision changes, your perception changes. He said, I need a speaker for a AAA meeting. <laughs> so I showed up. When I ran into Randy out in the lobby out there, uh, he said, well, are you ready to speak to the AA group? I said, oh, I thought I was going to educate an insurance company, <laughs> which I'd like to do, by the way. I said, what should I do? He said, well, give your name and say you're an alcoholic, so maybe they'll listen. So I'm Roger Alcoholic. <laughs> I'm not really an alcoholic, and I think you'll determine that before I'm done. What does your shirt say? I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. Sid, from Texas, stand up, turn around, let me read your shirt. There is no cure. Well, let's leave. <laughs> We're out of here early. Speaking of early, Randy said I had till about 3 o'clock because there's nothing else between me and 3 o'clock. By the way, Dino and Dave, I like the way you guys say it, regardless of what those guys say. It's a good word, however you say it. I saw some tapes out there, and one of them said, Sex, Spirituality, and Recovery, or something along that line. I remember sex was first and spirituality was second. The guy in the room next to me was extremely spiritual. Oh, God! Oh, God! I thought this was a men's conference. I, did, I heard some <laughs> On the 12-step panel, there was a gentleman from Chicago who was sitting on the end, and then, I'm sorry I don't remember his name, but he, he said some words that were very apropos for me. He said, and I'm not getting married, and I'm not interested in marriage, and and, 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 you know, I'm going to church. I might be shacking, but I'm going to church. I thought, well, that, that, that fits me pretty good. I heard a story I got to share with you about a guy who was having a little bit of an argument with his wife, and he thought, well, might as well go to the bar and have a couple beers. So he did. After he'd been there for a while, he determined maybe he'd had a little bit too much to drink, and he shouldn't drive home. He probably should walk. So he started walking in the middle of the night, and he went by a dark alley, and he, and he heard these words, for thirty dollars you can have me. Well, he thought for a minute, she's kind of ornery at home anyway, I'm in no big hurry to get there. I, I, I think I'll step in the alley here for a minute or two. So he did, and he started having a little bit of fun with that voice, and the police showed up, turned the light on him and said, hey, what are you doing in there? Even a surprised look, you know, he looked up and he said to the officer, well, I'm having sex with my wife. And the officer said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And he said, neither did I until you shined that light in here. (laughs) 
mind you, I don't know exactly where I'm going with all this. <laughs> so Randy says, tell him about your life. So I said, well, maybe that'll impress him. Okay, I'll tell him about my life. They ought to be impressed with that. I was. <laughs> I was born. To a very loving, kind, gracious, generous, rich family. There are no alcoholics in my immediate family other than me. And of course, I'm not an alcoholic, but for the sake of this discussion, we'll say that. <laughs> My dad is a doctor. He's in practice 66 years. He's working today so I can be here with you. He, uh, he's been the head of everything in the profession. They always had parties and everybody came over and they all partied. They drank. They had fun. Looked like fun to me. About the time I got old enough to go to the... Well, no, I, when I was six years old, my mother asked me to go to the store and get a loaf of bread. And a loaf of bread was 17 cents. So she gave me 17 cents. And by the way, the store is only 20 minutes from this hotel here. I was born and raised here, and I'm still here. By the grace of God, in a fast infield. And Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, I went to the store, and when I walked in the door, I saw black Smith Brothers cough drops. And, oh, I just liked them so well. But they cost a nickel. That wouldn't leave me enough to buy the bread. But I thought, well, I like the cough drops a lot better than the bread anyway, so I'll just tell my mother they didn't have any bread. And that was the start of my criminal career. <laughs> What do you suppose that means, the start of? So I bought those Smith Brothers cough drops and I ran out of that store right out into Fort Street and got run over by a car from some poor guy that just got back from the Second World War. Ow. Well, in the third grade I was sent to a military academy and my brother refers to it as a reform school. <laughs> and I learned so much in the third grade and that's the only year I was there, that when I, I was already into advanced algebra in the third grade. And when I came out and went back to public school, I didn't have to pick up a book for at least five years. So I didn't. <laughs> what do you think I did to fill up my time? I had fun in school. I've always been a good student. I mean, I could always pass a test or get an A or whatever was necessary to get through. I was a good athlete, never had any trouble getting any dates. But I will tell you, if it hadn't been for sports and cheerleaders, I'd have never made it through school. <laughs> I always knew what I wanted to do, and it's the same thing my dad did. As a matter of fact, I matriculated into college when I was 12 years old. Filled out the paperwork, I was ready to go. I knew what I wanted to do. I also knew what I didn't want to do, and that was go to school. I didn't need any more of that. I needed college. I knew where I wanted to go. Well, I started drinking also at a young age, in my teens, 
But I wasn't an alcoholic. I was having fun. When I was 16, we drank a couple beers, me and another guy, and there was a street in Wayne, 2nd Street. And it was a narrow street, and it had a, a ramp like uh, at the test track. And if you went up it real fast, the car would fly up in the air and you could have some fun. So I did it one week in my mother's 1954 convertible Ford, and I went sailing through there and flew up in the air, and tee-ha-ha, it was fun. So I went and told one of my friends about it, and he went and got his dad's new Oldsmobile, and we went and tried it in the Oldsmobile, his dad's car, and we flew up that ramp up in the air, and there was a car coming the other way, and when we came down, he had the steering wheel turned just a little bit, and the steering column broke, we did a 90 degrees and rolled two blocks and hit a tree. We should have been dead. Neither one of us is dead yet, he lives in Phoenix. And we only had a couple beers, but we were having fun. I graduated from high school and I went to college. What do you think we did in college? Well, absolutely. You probably thought we studied. <laughs> drank all the way through college. We drank 15 cent troopers of beer. It was good stuff. Well, along the way, I thought, you know, when I graduate, I got I to gotta be married. I got to be a real social citizen and a real man, and a real man should get married. So I graduated on February the 1st. 1962, and they granted me the degree of doctor, and on February the 3rd, I got married for the first time. <laughs> what do you think that means? <laughs> Remember that guy that said he didn't want to get married? I got married. I was ready to go and practice. <clears throat> when we graduated from college, what do you think we did? We Celebrated, naturally. And then coming home, I went to college in St. Louis. Coming home from St. Louis, I drank all the way home. It was the intelligent thing to do because alcoholics don't get hurt. People who are drinking don't get hurt. Only sober people do. Dangerous on the highway. <laughs> but I came home and I got into practice. I became quite successful. I've had airplanes and yachts and Cadillacs. Are you impressed yet? I got to tell a story that Randy heard me tell one time. I'd been in practice for a few years, and I was with another gentleman who also was in practice. We were both in our 20s. And we were going down to the college in St. Louis, Missouri, and we were drinking all day, and then we called the airport, and they were all full up, so we decided to drive to St. Louis. So we got a, he was from Scotland. His name was Ian. We got a fifth of scotch and a case of beer. And 90, Highway 94 was just finished about that time, and we were headed across 94 to 66 down to St. Louis. And we were going quite fast, 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, big slug of scotch, and wash it down with a little beer. And there was a hitchhiker out there, so we picked him up. Asked him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to St. Louis. And we said, you're in luck. We are too. Have a drink. <laughs> he thought he was in heaven. <laughs> So he took a drink of scotch and washed it down with a beer, and I took another slug and washed it down with another beer, and I had to burp, you know. But my burp turned into a puke. <laughs> we're going 100 miles an hour across 94, and we didn't have any air conditioning. The windows are down. And he's in the back seat. And I... Well, I didn't want to screw my car all up, so naturally it's out the window, you know, and it, of course it comes right in the back window. 
Then I got myself back together and had another drink, and the guy says, let me out at the next exit. <laughs> Couldn't figure out why he didn't want to stay with us all the way to St. Louis. Said maybe he knew something we didn't. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, I got divorced. I was married about five years. But I got busy. I got busy socially. I got busy professionally. Uh, I had a radio show for five years. Uh, I was in, uh, in demand as a public speaker all over the globe. Dale Carnegie graduate, extension faculty member at three different colleges, president of three corporations, and the chairman of the board of an international corporation, appointed by Jesse Helm to be an advisor to President Reagan in 1980. Are you impressed yet? Certainly can't be an alcoholic. Somebody on the panel up here in the 12 steps in the first step said there was some unmanageability. There was no unmanageability in my life. My life was going good. I had it planned. I knew what I wanted to do. I was doing it. I was good at it. So I got married, bought a house, and got divorced. <laughs> got married, bought a house, and got divorced. Got married, bought a house, and got divorced. There was no unmanageability in my life. That step had a wrong word. It should have said your wives were unmanageable. <laughs> and they were. Some jerk in this program said the reason you can't stay married is you drink too much. What? I was ordered in... Well, the first time that I had a run-in with the law was in 1964, and a police officer pulled me over for some road citation, and he said, have you been drinking? And I said, certainly. It's, you know right thing to do everybody I know drinks he said well we need to test your breath and your blood and I said no he said then you're going to jail and I said well do whatever you got to do but I'm not doing that well I went to the judge and the judge said all right for this citation you get three days in jail and I said your honor I'm running two different practices here and if you could work it out so I didn't have to spend three days in a row it would really be beneficial he said all right I'll give you a break I'll give you six days on weekends. <laughs> you may see along the way as I'm sharing with you that I was a little bit unlucky. <laughs> so I was put in Dihoko on weekends. Quite frankly, I thought I was going to die there. I'd go in on Saturday and get out on Sunday and go back the next weekend and the people who were in there didn't like that kind of an arrangement at all. And I worked in the laundry. But that was, you know, just a little bit of bad luck. In 1975, I was ordered to go to a uh, alcohol and substance abuse schooling because some other cop pulled me over and he thought there was something wrong with me because I'd drinking too much. He didn't understand. You can't drink too much. The sign said, drink Canada dry, and I did the best I could. <laughs> If the police were a little bit smarter, I wouldn't have been so unlucky. But I went to this schooling anyway, and they gave a test at the end of it, and I got 100% on it. And the, and the instructor for the test said, well, obviously you're not an alcoholic. And I said, well, I've been trying to tell you. So 
I left to go about living my life doing my things in a successful fashion, which I was used to. That was 1975. Then I was ordered into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1976, and I was ordered into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1977, and I was ordered into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1978, and I was ordered into Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, that went on for quite a number of years. But I'm not an alcoholic. I am a successful, independent businessman trying to do good things for people. And I wasn't a fighter. I wasn't a, a violent drunk. I wasn't a wife beater, a child molester. I was just a guy having fun trying to live his life as a free American citizen. And if other people had the right to have a drink, then don't tell me I don't. And don't tell me I'm one of them wacko sickos that live in the alley under a cardboard box, an old alcoholic bum, which I'm not. But I had so many arrests from the police that didn't know what they were doing that one time while I was spending my time in jail, I decided, well, I don't know, they keep taking my driver's license away, I might as well become a pilot. <laughs> So I studied all my flight books while I was in there, and the day they let me out, I went and took my test and passed. I've been a licensed pilot since 1979. Tons of fun. Now, there were a lot of times I didn't drink. I mean, I didn't drink when I was giving a lecture. I didn't drink when I was doing a radio show. I didn't drink when I was flying the airplane. But I always drank when I was driving because it was the only intelligent thing to do, which I did. But I'm not an alcoholic, I just, as you can tell, I was a little unfortunate and had some bad breaks with police who really didn't know what they were doing. They should have been out catching criminals and not after drunks that can't run. <laughs> I've been in 21 jails in four different states for alcohol-related offenses because I am extremely unlucky. <laughs> I remember one time in Florida with one of my ex-wives I had her dad's car and uh, it was quite early in the morning and I thought well everybody's sleeping and it's kind of a bad day right now a little overcast so I drove to the bowling alley to have a couple beers smart intelligent thing to do and I sat there until sometime late in the afternoon, got pretty well wired, and I thought, now nah, I'm, I'm in good enough shape to go home now. And I went out and got in the car, and I saw these cars pulling out of the parking lot. Well, I needed an exit, and when I saw them pulling out, I took this new Thunderbird, and I aimed it towards where those cars were that were pulling out, and I went right down a 15-foot ditch in the middle of the parking lot. Steep. Well, I tried backing out, and I couldn't get anywhere. So like any other intelligent being, I got out of the car and crawled up the ditch and looked for a cop in Florida. And there happened to be one in the parking lot. And he came over and he looked at me and he said, have you been drinking? <laughs> no, I just always park in these, this kind of a lot. I said, certainly. So I went to another jail. That was a little embarrassing to call and talk to your father-in-law and say, I'm in jail and your car's in the ditch. Didn't teach me nothing, because I was living my life as a normal human being. I was just unlucky. Well, that wife and I divorced after 10 years, and I met a girl in a bar who was married to another guy who was in college, and so I'd go up and talk to her, 
they were his uh, her husband was getting into my profession and i thought well i'll give her some pre-education so when he gets out she'll be able to help him well her and i got married uh, <laughs> about six months later and she was the right woman she loved sex she loved partying and i finally found the right mate this one was going to make it well that marriage lasted about three years and we had to go our separate way well i was i was attending aa meetings but i knew i wasn't an alcoholic i'd been attending meetings since 1975 and i'd sit at the table and say my name's roger and i'm an alcoholic i'm just lying through my teeth because i knew i wasn't an alcoholic whatever my concept was of an alcoholic i didn't fit it you had to be some kind of a loser failure bum cardboard box alley all that kind of stuff and i had one uncle who was an alcoholic and i was nothing like him naturally i drank a lot because it was the right thing to do and the normal thing to do and, and people would say do you like puking i'd say no they say well you do it all the time and i'd have to explain it don't you understand when you drink as much as me it's perfectly normal to puke well do you like hangovers no well you must you have them every day well you, don't you understand if you drink as much as me you're supposed to have a hangover it's a poisoning it's perfectly normal well aren't you a little sick and tired of the police arresting you yeah but we need to change the law i remember president kennedy <laughs> president kennedy said one time if a law is wrong violate it until it's changed well i did i kept violating it and you know i i went before a judge in detroit his name was Charles Kaufman and he had just given two guys probation that had killed a Chinaman and he was on the hot seat and I thought oh man of all the courts I've been to of all the judges I've gone before of all the attorneys I've hired of all the expenses I've had I'm in trouble how am I going to get a message over to this judge that I'm really not an alcoholic that there's something wrong with the law well I went in there and there was about this many people however many this is in a space about big enough for half of this section here we were all crammed in that court and i happened to be the first one on the docket at 8 30 in the morning and i stood before the judge this was in uh, april of 1984 <clears throat> and the judge said you know what you have to be the dumbest person that has ever been in this courtroom well, I'm thinking, what kind of a jerk is this? He doesn't know. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about me. I've never met him before. And here he's judging me like this and calling me these names. But my attorney talked with the prosecutor and the judge, and pretty soon the judge said, unquestionably, you have to be the dumbest person that has ever been in his courtroom. He said, you know, we sent you to alcohol and, and uh, drug counseling and you learned nothing. We sent you to Alcoholics Anonymous, you learned nothing. We put you in jail, you learned nothing. We put you on probation, you learned nothing. We took away your driver's license, you drove anyway. You are the dumbest person that has ever been in this courtroom. He said, I'm sending you to Jackson Prison three to five. And if I check your record and it's any worse than what I have in front of me, you're going in the Central Complex for 15 years. And what he had in front of him was nothing. 
My record was already a computerized sheet of arrests, drunk driving. So I knew I was going to Jackson. Now in my brilliance, I thought that Jackson Prison was where you put criminals, not nice guys like me, doing good for humanity, helping people all over the world. Why am I going to Jackson? The law really sucks. We got to do something about this law. It's bad. Well, the bartering went on for about 15 or 20 minutes. And the judge then said, you know what? I have no idea why I'm doing this, but I'm going to give you one last chance. He said, I'm going to let you pick a hospital of your choice. And you go to it and spend the entire treatment time. And then you come back and see me, and I will determine what judgment you will get. So I thought, well, that's better than prison. So I'll go to this AA hospital because it's a lesser punishment. So I went to the AA hospital over in Minnesota. My second day in this insane asylum, <laughs> this therapist counselor that I had called me in his office and he said, Roger, what is step two? I said, that you believe in God? He said, Roger, what is step? Hi, Mike. He said, Roger, what is step two? I said, well, that you believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ is the Savior. He said, Roger, what is step two? I said, well, you believe in God the Father and Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Virgin Mary? And he said, Roger, what is step two? And I said, why are you doing this? All you're trying to do is pick a fight with me. I've always believed in God. I tell you from my heart today, I've always believed in God. I did not come into Alcoholics Anonymous and find God. God wasn't lost. I knew where he was. Roger was lost, but didn't think so. Matter of fact, I was quite certain I wasn't lost. Well, he asked me again. He never answered any of my questions. He just said, Roger, what is step two? And I said, well, all right, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the Holy Ghost? He said, Roger, what is step two? Now, my blood pressure's going up. I want to reach over across his desk and smack him one, and I don't care who wins this fight. All this guy was doing was irritating me because I already believed in God, and he was too stupid to recognize that I did. And he said, Roger, what is step two? And I said, well, for Christ's sake, if I haven't told you by now, I guess I don't know. He said, I'm going to mark that down, got out a pencil and paper, said it took 15 minutes for Roger O'Dell <laughs> to admit that there is anything he doesn't know. So he said, go on back to your room. So I went back to my room, and I got out the big book, and I went into how it works. And I memorized those 12 steps so good, frontwards and backwards. I knew where all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, and I could say them frontwards and backwards. So the next time this jerk did that to me, his majesty would flow with the answer. Now there's only one problem with that. That jerk never did that to me again through the whole treatment, so I learned those steps for nothing. Now, I hope you're beginning to understand, somewhat, that I truly believed that I was living my life right, that I believed my brain, I believed my thinking, I believed my action. How are you going to get a message 
into a colossal egomaniac that he is a dim-witted, nit-witted, alcoholic bum that makes a lot of money and flies airplanes and has all kinds of awards and accolades and success all over the world. How are you going to get that message into my head when I think I'm doing it right? It was impossible for me to get step one. Admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives had become unmanageable. First of all, I wasn't powerless over anything, and my wives were unmanageable, so you can throw that step out. Didn't apply to me. Second and third steps, I already believed in God, so I didn't need them. The fourth step, taking an inventory, I did that every day on everybody. And sharing that inventory, I did a lot of that. You talk about shortcomings, man, the world was full of them, and the world ought to straighten up. You see, you get it? I didn't get it. I didn't know that walking sideways, peeing on your leg, puking on your date, parking in the neighbor's bushes, and waking up in jail was not an intelligent way to live. I really thought it was perfectly normal, but I objected, and I resented the fact that the courts owned me and the attorneys owned me and, and other people didn't understand. They, they said, you drink too much, and the reason you can't stay married is you drink too much. Nobody understood, and that bothered me. Why didn't they understand me? I'm just a normal person that wants to be free in America and, and enjoy some freedom and celebrate like anybody else. I mean, if I stopped drinking, I couldn't get married again. <laughs> Worse than that, I couldn't get divorced again because the celebration on a divorce was always more fun than the wedding. <laughs> you realize if I quit drinking, I can never go fishing? Can you imagine being out on a boat all day, drowned in worms, and just sitting there doing that, not having a drink? How boring! I would never be able to play golf again. I would never be able to celebrate New Year's Eve. I would never be able to have a celebration at my birthday. I could never go visit the neighbors because everybody drinks. So don't be so stupid as to tell me I should quit. The thing that should happen is the police should sharpen up go after criminals, not drunks. The law should change. I really tried to change it. Full out effort. In 1981, I laid on a slab in the Toledo hospital, pronounced dead from alcoholic poisoning. They didn't understand. When I came to, I saw this light about as big as this chandelier here, and I realized right away I was in a hospital, and a hospital's for sick people, and I wasn't sick. I didn't know yet that I had been pronounced dead with a tag on my toe, and they brought me back to life some kind of way, and I was totally paralyzed on my left side. I had a stroke, a heart attack, and a grand mal seizure all at the same time, and all I was doing was out partying. I was, just, I was having fun. I was out with the guys, and played golf, and drank. It was in July, and it was summertime, and all that happened after my partying. I was dead. Now, obviously, being able to pass any test you give me, well-rounded in education, a lot of acquisitions in my life, His Majesty recognized right off that I was still alive and anybody had been resurrected from the dead, like Jesus, 
my company was getting a little higher, <laughs> should at least celebrate his resurrection. <laughs> so I did. I went down to the Irish pub in Toledo on Seacorn Alexis to celebrate my resurrection and drank till 2.30 in the morning. Why do you think I drank till 2.30 in the morning? They wouldn't give me no more. <laughs> so I headed for home. <clears throat> I only lived about six miles from there, and I made it about three or four miles and got arrested and went back to Monroe County Jail. Now, speaking of the Monroe County Jail, I had a run-in with the sheriff down there in 1975, about the first time I got arrested in Monroe County. And uh, it seems that I was at a bar down at Stony Point, Hank's Tavern, and I was shooting pool, and the sheriff came in with his number one detective. His name was Teague. I can talk about these people now because they're dead and gone, bless their souls. But the sheriff was attempting to pick up my second ex-wife, and I took objection to that. And I didn't know he was the sheriff, but I went over to him, and he was quite drunk. And I said, hey, do you know it's not a real good idea to try to pick up a man's wife when the man is standing next to you? And he went like this to take a swing at me as he was blurbing all these remarks, and he fell down on the floor, and his sheriff guide, Teague, grabbed a hold of me to stop me. He said, that's the sheriff. I suggest you leave. And, of course, I'm rattling off some words, too, about I don't care who it is, and, you know, get out of the way. But I left, and I went home, and it seems that there was a, an open house two doors down from me. It was a cottage, and the... One of the firemen from River Rouge was having a big doings down there, and he was a good friend of mine. So my wife and I walked over there, and we walked in the back door where there was a foyer, and we walked in, and there stood the sheriff and Teague. And the sheriff pulled his gun out. And Teague grabbed a hold of the sheriff and his gun, and he said, I suggest you leave. Well, now I'm not going to tell you all the things that were going through my mind, but I left. And I still had my radio show at that time, so naturally I went on the radio, and I started saving the world, telling about this drunk sheriff that uh, was accepting graft money to keep Sally's Lounge open, which was a topless, bottomless place. And I liked that place, and I liked Sally, and I wanted it to stay open. But I was so disgusted with the sheriff that I had to expose some of his stuff. So the sheriff ran into me one night at the Colonial Inn when I was with a, uh, a gentleman that owned a car dealership, and he, he walked over to the table, and he said, Odell, I'm going to get you. Well, he put out the word. Anytime that gold Thunderbird was seen in the county, it was to be pulled over. And it was. Every time. And there was one other guy in the county that had a car like that, and he was getting pulled over, too. He didn't like it either. Well, that war went on for ten years, and the sheriff won. He won every battle, and he won the war. But I still had the radio show, and I'm still doing all the things I'm doing. I still think I'm trying to help humanity. You see, I had a serious problem that I didn't know about. I'm an alcoholic. With that, I qualify now to put this on. Randy gave me this. I said, why are you giving me that, Randy? That's for alcoholics. I ain't one of them. Well, up to this point, maybe I am. So I'll put this on. There. <laughs> now I'm one of them. Whatever one of them is. 
You see, some are sicker than others. I qualify. I was so intelligent and so wrapped up in his majesty over here that I could not see the disease of alcoholism. And I'm hurrying. After I went to that treatment center, as I was getting ready to leave, either the, either the priest or my therapist asked a question. They said, are you afraid of anything? And I said, I'm only afraid of one thing. And this was the level of my honesty at that time. I thought I was honest all the time. I was yet to learn that I didn't even know what the word meant. I was trying. Didn't know what it was. But my level of honesty said, yes, I'm afraid of one thing. I'm afraid that I have conned you like I have everybody else, and when I get back to Detroit, I'm going to resume living my life the way I know how to do it. And one of them said, you may have to learn to live with that thought. Well, when I got back here, I was put on probation for two years. They took my driver's license away for 300 years, <laughs> but I was a pilot. <laughs> Those laws have changed, too, I might add. <laughs> I said about to change the world, and I guess I did, but it kept getting worse. Well, they, they sentenced me to three meetings a week. <clears throat> so I, I thought, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. I'm an important person. I have important things I have to do. I have to go to barbecues, and I want to go to a movie, and I might want to get married again. And i got to visit some people. And I have all these things to do. I can't spend all of my time. i got to run a business. You want me to sit in AA meetings. Well, it was either that or Jackson Prison, so I sat in AA meetings. <laughs> I thought it was a much less penalty. But it's still a penalty. After six months, I wasn't having anything to drink, and I knew that I was better. Like it says in the beginning of the big book, that they had recovered from their alcoholism. I had recovered from mine. So I sat at a table over at the island group, and there were nine people at that table. And I said, you know, if you guys will sign this paper, I'll be able to take it to the probation department and cut down from three a week to two, for God's sake, and start getting this life going right. And those nine people at that table had had enough recovery and enough sobriety that they all said the same thing in different words, which was, Roger, you don't need three meetings a week anymore. You need four. <laughs> or five. <laughs> or six. Well, now my mind's working real fast, and I'm thinking, you know a good rotten so-and-so's if you only knew. But I had grown enough at that point to decide that maybe I should listen to those people and my sponsors. And so I added one and went to four. And then I went to five. And then I went to six. And then I went to seven. And then I went to two a day. And then three a day and then four a day, and then five a day, and still running the business. I got very active in service. In 1989, I was the program chairman for the state conference, and we brought in a gay priest from California. Like they never heard the end of that. <laughs> some, some people in recovery got a little upset. 
they didn't really care for my program direction. <laughs> Speaking of which, people in the program, I see sobriety and I see recovery. And boy, to me, there is a world of difference between sobriety and recovery. A guy said to me, his name was Cooper, bless his soul, he's gone now. One of my sponsors, I, ha I had to have a lot of sponsors. I think I, in the first year I had six sponsors, five of them went out drinking. <laughs> you see how good I do with them. But Cooper, he said, you know what, Roger, I was at a meeting called the Babbling Brook, and he said, Roger, any moron can stay sober for 24 hours. But maybe in your case we can make an exception. <laughs> I knew what he was saying. I wanted, to, I wanted to punch the old man, but he was right. In my recovery now, I have learned so much about how little I knew when I thought I knew it all. Today I'm wondering when we're going to get a 17-year-old president of the United States because we need somebody who still has all the answers for everything. And that takes somebody between the age of 12 and 17 because they just know everything. Well, I stayed that way for 31 years of drinking. My problem that I didn't understand was that I trusted my thinking. And then I heard early in recovery that there was a, a woman medical doctor in California that was doing some uh, autopsies on drunks or on, on heroin addicts, and she found this chemical called THIQ, trihydroisoquinlin. And she said to the county and the state, now, don't send me any more heroin, people. Send me some winos. So they sent her some winos, and she cut their brains and their bodies open, and she found THIQ and got rather mad. She went back after the people and said, I told you, don't send me any more heroin, people. And they said, we're not sending you heroin people. These people are strictly winos. And she made a discovery that that chemical, THIQ, is found in the brains of chemical addicts, whether it would be heroin, cocaine, crack, wine, beer, whiskey, doesn't make any difference. That chemical is in the brain of a chemical addict. I have that chemical in my brain. Now, what I've learned about that chemical is it works the opposite of sodium pentothal. Sodium pentothal forces me to tell the truth against my will. So I guess you understand what THIQ makes me do against my will. If I caught a perch that big in the Detroit River, by the time I got to you, it would have grown to this size, and I caught it in Lake Erie. Exaggeration, fabrication, and lie. I didn't know yet that my alcoholism was a disease in my brain that forced me to lie when none was necessary. And as long as I live... Telling me what I thought was good for me, there's no way I was ever going to get step one. And some woman said to me, which happened to be one of my sponsors, and I sat at a table with her the other day, she said, Roger, you need to forget every single thing you have ever learned. And of course I knew right off, what an idiot this woman is. But since she was picked as one of my sponsors, I thought I'd better listen to her. And I was on my way into that Babbling Brook meeting in 1986, 
about the 20th of October, and that woman's husband cold-cocked me walking into the AA meeting, told me to stay away from his wife. And I said, your wife has to be one of the only people in the program I don't even talk to. And that was two weeks before my fourth marriage, which we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> then there was another guy who threatened my life 13 times in one year. These are people in the program. <laughs> then there was another guy. I went to the Alano Club in Lincoln Park. He was sitting up at the bar. I went up and sat down next to him to get a coffee. And he said, come on outside. I want to talk to you. We walked out on the porch. He pulled out a 38. Stuck it right here. Said, I ought to blow your brains out. It was about his wife. I have been accused of laying everybody in AA. <laughs> Better run home and ask your wife if she knows me. These are people in the program. You know how many times I could have walked out the door and said, you people really are nuts. I don't belong in here. You're all wacko. Jesus, I haven't been with a woman in 103 years. It's awful. I wish that I would have just had 2% of everything I was accused of. I'd be on that sex spirituality tape out there. <laughs> What I'm trying to get over to you is, in a simple way, that that woman was right. I needed to learn to stop relying on my thinking ability and start listening to someone else. And if I objected to what they say, do it immediately. Pick somebody in the program that you can just hate because they make the best sponsor. And if you don't hate them yet, you will. If you've got a good sponsor, you're going to hate them somewhere down the line. Then you'll come to love them. Randy, one of Randy's sponsors, I sponsor. And of course, we're told early, don't go around wet places and wet faces and associate with people who are in recovery. So I took Randy's sponsor after a couple of months. Uh, I had a patient who happened to be a uh, dancer over at a place called Cheetahs in Windsor, where they wear nothing. And I think he was sober about four months. And I took him over there, and he was watching this woman dance with uh, barefoot up to her neck. <laughs> And she was right down on his face, and he, he looked over at me, and his blood pressure was up, and he, he was panting, and he looked at me, and he says, God, she's got nice teeth. <laughs> when we left there, he said, what kind of a sponsor are you? <laughs> well, we learn along the way. <laughs> we hope. Well, I learned that I had a long way to go to find out that 
that I was a very sick person, that I needed to surrender. I needed page 449, paragraph 2, worse than anybody in the program. I needed to accept and surrender some truths and some realities that I couldn't figure out on my own. I see life quite different today because of you. I live life quite different today because of you. Because God in my world works through you, and he works through me. God has never been a question. I want you to know something from the bottom of my heart. You are very important, each one. Very, 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 very important. And it doesn't do you a bit of good for me to know that. You have performed a miracle on a dead man that the churches couldn't do, that the intelligent people of the earth couldn't do, that all the people with all of the accolades and the awards and ceremony and pomp and circumstance couldn't do. You did what Father Martin refers to for me in me. You waited around with the right information to offer me a moment of truth. And you didn't say to me, well, first of all, you've got to stop drinking before you're welcome in our club. If that was the case, I sure wouldn't be alive, nor would I be standing here. And you said there aren't any real demands. There are some suggestions. We suggest you follow them. You gave me hope where there was none. You gave me life after death. You are a miracle maker, each one of you, because I sure couldn't figure none of it out on my own. I heard step 10 referred to on the 12-step panel. And I, I recognize it's there. If I ever need it, I know it's there. See how much work some people need? <laughs> I learned that making amends and saying I'm sorry is not something good for you. When I say to you I'm sorry, that's not good for you. That's good for me. When I make an amends for, for my life and, and the mistakes and the things that I've done, that's not for you. That's for me. Does that sound selfish? At what point do you separate selfishness from humbleness? And how do you figure it out? You don't. You just keep doing it. As many times as I've been threatened and accosted and beaten by people in the AA program when I could have left. I learned to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That guy that sucker punched me walking into meeting, people said, well, why didn't you fight with him? You're the same size. Who knows? Maybe you would have won. I said, you're right, but that's the world I just left. Well, then you're a coward. You're a yellow belly. You're a chicken. I didn't like any of that stuff, but I listened to it. And I kept going to meetings. He didn't. 
he got in a wreck two weeks later pulling out on telegraph and I looked up and said yeah, okay thanks It is not for me to fix you. People said if you would have filed an injunction against him, it might have helped him in his recovery. I said, my recovery is not about him. I could have quit. My recovery was about me trying to learn. Learn what? Learn how to be the best me I can be on a daily basis, one day at a time, practicing the 12 steps of recovery in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the Lord's Prayer, we say it all the time. Forgive those. When do you forgive somebody? Give us forgiveness as we forgive those. How do you see that? How much forgiveness do I get? As much as I give. How much forgiveness do you want? How much are you giving? I get back from life today what I put into it. And there's a simple explanation that I have that I like. If I go into a restaurant and the waitress walks over to my table and I say, that's the only kind of crap you got here. What kind of service am I going to get? <laughs> but what if the waitress walks over and I say, where did you get those gorgeous eyes from your mother's side of the family or your dad's? What kind of service am I going to... She's going to take me back and introduce me to the chef. <laughs> With my kind of luck, she might want to take me home and introduce me to her dad. <laughs> but at what point do we start to practice these things we're learning? Well, I'm not going to let nobody make me a doormat. They're not stepping on me. I'm fighting back. <laughs> Go get them. <laughs> I like to forgive them in advance because I know it ain't going to last long. They only want to fight with somebody that fights back. How important is it in your world to be right? Well, I'm not going to let anybody step on me and be a doormat. I'll straighten them out. Okay, go be right. You're just not going to be as happy as me. There are principles. A couple of them are mentioned in uh, Traditions and the Steps. The last half of the Twelfth Tradition says we need to place principles before personalities. And the last half of the Twelfth Step is, and practice these principles in all of our affairs, not selectively some that seem convenient for the moment. Where does change come from? Change comes from doing those things that are uncomfortable that you're not used to and you don't like. And nobody could change me. Nobody. Except you. So there's some kind of power. I call it God. Good orderly direction. God as I know him. Works so strong through you that this colossal egomaniac drunk has not had to pick up a drink since July the 23rd of 1984 and for that I am eternally grateful to you Alcoholics Anonymous and God as I understand him 
May you leave here today with peace in your heart, with God in your life, and with love in your world. Thank you and enjoy.